Well, we have uh, asked a question each week um, in this series. We are in, in Romans 12, and that question, uh, very, very simple questions. The first one uh, that we uh, looked at, uh, very simple. Second one, also, here's the question today. Is the church, the church, big, big C, the church across South America, would you say that she has the reputation of being the kind of loving environment that God intends for us to be? Is the reputation of the church, meaning that the way that people view us, lowercase here, here, it's here at Wildwood, uh, but, but capital C across, do we have the reputation of being the loving community that God has in store for us? I've said this all along the way. Religious followers offer things to God. Followers of Jesus offer themselves to God. Religious followers direct others to work for God. Followers of Jesus minister grace to others through God. Now today we're going to look at specific ways in which Paul is writing here, prescribing for us things that he expects for all believers to put into practice. And before I get there, you need to hear this. So please open your ears. There are some of us here today who need desperately to hear, you are already doing this. There are some amongst us that have been living this out. It has been a lifestyle for them for quite some time, but for whatever reason, they tend to see themselves through a different lens and they think there's always more I can do. There's more I can give. There's more I can sacrifice, et cetera. And while on the one hand, we always want to ask the question, God, what more can I do? Some of us here do that to the detriment of our own health and even our own families. And so today, as we walk through this passage, some of us really need to hear, God, thanks for what you've been doing in my heart. Continue to use me and, 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 and I don't need to do any more. I don't know what percentage of people that is. It may be 5%. It may be 95%. I don't know. But some of us desperately need to hear that because I don't want you to walk away putting yet another burden on yourself, walking away with even more shame about what it is that you aren't doing. And, and God has been looking down and smiling and saying, I'm so pleased with you. On the flip side, there's some of us in here that need to hear this. You need to get after it. Because it's more than just intellectual assent to truth. We may believe in our minds what is true, but what belief is in the depths of our heart, meaning when it has impacted us, it causes us to respond differently. And here's why it causes us to respond differently. It's not as simple as, oh my goodness, God, in light of all that you've done for me, now I want to do for you. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. That's not the way it works in scripture. The way it works is, oh my goodness, all that you have done for me, the Holy Spirit invades this space, changes this heart so that what I actually desire is different. There is a heart change. I desire now to say, oh God, I want so desperately to follow you. I want to sacrifice. I want to give. See, some of us have been walking through just an intellectual ascent to truth and saying, I, I, I'm good. But there actually hasn't been a change in the depths of our soul. So please, I don't know where you fall on the spectrum. I don't know if you fall on the spectrum of you just think 
so little of yourself. You don't see yourself through the lens that God sees you. And so you're going to heap on more on yourself and you walk away just forgetting how much it is that God has already done, is doing, and will do in you. Or if you're on the other end of the spectrum and you just say, I don't know that I've really ever done much other than think about myself, even though I believe in Jesus. So Romans 12. F.F. Bruce has this to say in regards to the first 11 chapters and then this transition in this chapter. Doctrine is never taught in the Bible simply that it may be known. It is taught in order that it may be translated into practice. If you know these things, he quotes Jesus, blessed are you if you do them. I think we could sum it up this morning by just simply saying this. Religious followers manage the behavior of man. Followers of Jesus, they love the people of God. Religions all over the world oftentimes will do a better job than Christians of good behavior. It is not uncommon for you to see someone who does not have a relationship with Jesus, but is extraordinarily committed to their religion that will behave far better than I will. Religious followers manage the behavior of men. That is the goal, to manage the behavior. Followers of Jesus, because of this heart change, they love the people of God. Why do they love the people of God? Because God loves the people of God. And their hearts are getting formed and fashioned and molded into looking what it, like what it is that Jesus' look like. If you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 12, we're going to continue. And in honor of God's word, I'd ask you to stand as we read Begin just a few verses today. Begin reading in verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. We'll skip verse 14 and go to 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. You may be seated. Now, the reason we skip verse 14 is we're going to tie it in next week. I believe this week right here, the, the best way to look at this section is, um, here's in essence how to love God's people. Next week, how do we love the world? Paul in here makes a transition. John Stott says it this way, so far in Romans, all references to agape, the, the highest form of love, have been uh, solely to the love of God. It's in 5.8 when it's demonstrated on the cross it is in 5.5, 5, poured out into our hearts. In uh, chapter 8, verses 35, as well as 39, and it, which is refusing to let us go. But now Paul focuses on agape as the essence of Christian discipleship. I hope you caught that. Agape love is the essence of Christian discipleship. What did Jesus say? You will know who my followers are. Tell them the world. I give you permission to make judgments about my people. You'll know who my followers are by their love for one another. He does not say, oh, you'll know them 
by their understanding of Greek and Hebrew. You will know them by how well they can articulate doctrine and theology. You will know them by how many sins they say no to. Jesus makes it very, very simple. Do you want to know who's mine? Do you want to know who's connected to me? You want to know who I'm changing, forming, fashioning? You want to know whose heart I'm transforming? Look at those who love. And if they don't love, pretty good chance they don't belong to me. It is the essence of Christian discipleship. What do we mean by love? That's what he's going to write in here. Look at the very first verse out of the gates here that we have for this morning. Love must be sincere. Now, what do we mean by sincere? I think we could label it just true love. If you have watched The Princess Bride, you have it going through your mind right now. True Love. Now, what is it? True love is sincere. It lacks hypocrisy. This is what the word here means. Now, what was a hypocrite? What is a hypocrite? Keep in mind how this term was used. A hypocrite was, uh, was someone that received the term. They were an actor and they had a mask that was on their face so that their mask could represent what emotion they were trying to portray, trying to play. That may not have been true of the actor at that moment, but as the actor was drumming up the emotion that's needed to, to carry out this, this, uh, uh, this action, etc., the mask wearer was a hypocrite. Because this portrayed something that was not necessarily true going on behind the mask. So in one sense, could you say all Christians are hypocrites? Well, I, if, you, if you have never been accused of being a hypocrite, then you're just not trying to fight your flesh. All Christians at one level could be accused of being a hypocrite. But what does Jesus mean when he uses, what does Paul mean when he uses this? It does not mean people who believe one thing but cannot seem to find the strength, the power, etc., to always and only overcome every sin. So if the definition of a hypocrite is one who is sinless, then there's one hypocrite that has ever existed in the history of the world. It does not mean that you cannot maintain the law. It does not mean you believe deeply something but cannot seem to live it out. Paul in Romans 7, I can't stop doing the very thing that I hate doing. What I want to do, I, I, I can't do it. Who's going to rescue me? Praise be to Jesus. Hypocrite is not someone who believes deeply but cannot live it out. A Christian is one who gives all appearances of not struggling. No, nah. Nah, man, I really hate that for you. I don't struggle with that. And maybe you don't with that particular sin. That's okay. There are some sins that I actually don't struggle with. There's two. That's it. Everything else I struggle with. I, there are some sins that I struggle with that you don't. The issue is not this. The issue is, do people know you as a person who is clinging to Jesus, believing that he is the only one who can make you right? Or do people see you as one who's white-knuckling their Christianity, hanging on, trying to get everything done in order to pay back God all that he's done for you? So when you do that, you have to turn to hypocrisy because it's all about managing behavior. 
rather than about loving people. You know what the world needs? The world does not need Christians who sin less. The world needs Christians who confess more. And that confession is not just, I can't maintain the standard that God has set up. The confession is, oh, I believe I still need Jesus. So love must be sincere, not hypocritical. Regularly taking the log out of your own eye in order to address the speck in your brother's eye. Right here, Paul has moved away from what we would call those charismatic gifts in here. Now he's making this transition. And this functions um, in in many ways um, uh, uh, to let us know that he expects what is about to follow. He expects this of every follower of Jesus. We have moved from individual gifts that some may have, some may not have, now moving to what are the characteristics that should be true of all followers of Jesus. You ready? Get buckled up. If you can say, oh, this describes me perfectly at the end, then please trade places with me. You lead this church because we need you badly. Love must be sincere. Everything that follows, in essence, is what does love mean? What does, first of all, love do? It hates what is evil and it clings to what is good. What do we mean by hates what is evil? It does not mean that we have this little irritation with sin. It means that we hate everything that is contrary to God, his character, and his word. This hatred does not mean that we take it out on people. This hatred means we are so... God, please do something about the sin first in my life, in my family, in my church's life. In my, God, would you eradicate sin? I know that day is coming when you return, but would you go to work now? I, now, I have a very real, deep, sincere concern for the church. Ours is one of them. I have this great concern that we have gone so far down the road of, and I'll use this word, stupidity, that we have said that tolerance and love now means the accepting and embracing of all things. And if we are not accepting and embracing of everything that comes in the life of another person, then we are not tolerant and loving. That is bull. That is contrary to what it is that God has said. I can tell you right now, my son comes to me and says, Dad, Hey, I just want you to know, um, I'm thankful for all of the things that you have done for me over the years. I'm grateful. This whole message that you think about Christianity, I'm glad it's good for you. It's not for me. And so here's what I want you to know. I I think that the best choice for me is to go out and get intoxicated every single night. And I think that drugs should also be a part of this. And so I'm looking to find as many women as I possibly can who also believe in this lifestyle. And if you love me, then you'll accept this in me. You know what I'm going to tell my son? Son, you already are on drugs. <laughs> if you think there's ever a day in which I'm going to tell you, buddy, because I love you so much, I'm just going to embrace you. And it just whatever you want to do, I, I don't agree with it. But I'm whatever. It's the most unloving thing that I can do. Now, what I can't do is tie him down to a bedpost. I mean, I could. But what I can't do, I can't manage his behavior. But I can love him. And how can I love him? By telling him, son, the direction that you're choosing right now 
is headed towards destruction. There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it leads to destruction. And I want you to know, I am against everything that you just said. I hope you never treat women in that way because that's not the way that Jesus treats his church. I hope you never see that there is something outside the person of Christ that is going to satisfy and fulfill your deepest longings in life. I want you to know, I think that you're headed down a road that I'm going to pray will become so distasteful for you that it will dry you up and then you'll be filled with this divine mist. I just miss being with God. I'm gonna pray that God would hasten that day and he'll bring you back to your senses. I can share that with him. It would be unloving for me to force him to do everything that I want him to do. 18 and older, I can't, I can't force my kids to. But it would be equally as unloving for me just to embrace now, please hear this distinction. We must understand while we can hate everything that is evil, hate every sin that exists in the world, starting with our own selves, looking, saying, God, do the work in me. We can hate every sin, but we cannot hold those who do not claim to follow Jesus. We cannot hold them to the same standard we hold those inside the walls of the church. Do you know what I expect? Those who do not claim to have any relationship with you. You know what I expect from them? Sin. And I'm trying to point them to the beauty and the magnificence and the forgiveness of God that comes through the person of Jesus Christ on the cross that is sufficient to save them from all their sins. I want to point them to that over and over again. Those who claim to follow Jesus, I want to point them to the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice, that it is sufficient not only for the penalty of their sin, but it's also sufficient to overcome the power of sin in their life. And so fight it. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. This is a great word. It means glued to or tied to. That the Christian, the follower of Jesus is inextricably tied to good, walking on the path of good. And when we find ourselves diverting off of that path, because we come back like a boomerang, we're so committed to it, glued to it, we just come back to this path of good over and over and over again. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. I love this, the construction of this sentence. Once again, I think the NIV gets it so uh, right here. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. What's the concept he's trying to get across? That the relationships inside the walls of the church are of a family nature. So be devoted to one another. Not just pulling for one another. Not just applauding from a distance, hoping for the best. Not just every now and then saying, man, I hope you're doing well. Be devoted to one another, which means I'm not going to give up on you. Why? Because in the words of, I think it's Sister Sledge or Pointer Sisters, we are family. Family. And if you've had family members that have walked off of the path, you know exactly what I'm talking about right now. You don't give up on family. You may have to give up on trying to get them to walk a straight and for this season. You may have to give up on that and say, Lord, they're yours. But you don't ever give up on family. 
Some parents have been praying from a distance still. No communication with the child whatsoever. That they are praying for you. Be devoted to one another. I, just a question. Right now, could you name three or four people within the walls of this church that you would say, I know they are devoted to me. And I know I am devoted to them. Because they're like family. Be devoted to one another. Brotherly love here, this word he uses, honor. The word honor means to value people. It means to show their worth. Now, I found this to be interesting. Please understand this. The Greek transliteration, what I mean by that is how it's spelled in Greek. If we were to put that in English letters, do you know what the transliteration of that word is? It's time. The word, the word would be spelled like this in English, T-I-M-E. Now, it, it's not where we get our word time. That's a different word in Greek. I just found this to be rather interesting. Honor, the root word there is T-I-M-E. I, I think there's a clue for us. We honor others with our time. We honor others with our words and we honor others with our time. The best way you can tell someone you are worth it, you are valuable, is by stepping into their world and asking them, to step into yours by merging those two circles. Loneliness is what kills most Christians. Aloneness is what stings the greatest because deep inside we know God has created us for relationship and the very place that we want so desperately to experience it, we, we can't find. We can find it on a superficial level oftentimes, but not on the depth that we're called Honor one another, look at this, above yourselves. He is not saying think so lowly of yourself that you don't attend to your own needs. Remember the words of Jesus, you know, there's, quoting uh, in the Old Testament, we, we do or we are called to love our neighbor, how? As we love ourselves. Paul, when he talks to husbands about loving their wives, he uses this illustration of a body and getting it in shape. And he says, after all, no one ever hated his own body. Love your wives just as you love yourself. Honor one another with your words and with your presence. Think back to this past week. How were your words used to bring honor to someone to their face? And how about away from them, behind their back? Were your words used to honor them? With zeal and fervor, it says in verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. These words are closely related, but they do have a little difference. There's a nuance to them. This word zeal um, does not mean this outward display of, of enthusiasm. In other words, in order to be a zealot, it does not mean that you have to have all this outward action and motion. In other words, we love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? But that's, that's not what it's talking about. Okay. The enthusiasm is going to come far more from uh, within. It does not mean hype. What it means is that it's not half-hearted. That's what zeal means. 
It's not that I'm sort of pursuing this. I'm kind of going after that. When it's convenient for me, I'll do this. That's not what it means. It means full-hearted in there. Now, how about, how about the next one, which is spiritual sur- uh, fervor? This could actually be translated to be set on fire by the Holy Spirit. Set aglow is another way that it would have been translated. It's not, again, not an external display of enthusiasm. It means that there is an intensity on the inside that refuses to quit on somebody else. And who is he referring to specifically? Who do we refuse to quit on? The Lord. Be set on fire by the Holy Spirit and serve the Lord. Everything that you do, every little detail, every act of love is serving the Lord. And while the other person may not see it, the other person may not experience it, receive it, etc., every little thing that you do in service of the Lord can be used for extraordinary means, uh, uh, measures, even though that may be very ordinary means. You may think your little act of love when you were tired may not have a difference at all. The Lord may use that in powerful ways. You may never know about it, but the Lord just may do that. Now, verse 12, he tells us what we do this with. It says to be joyful. I find this to be interesting. It sounds like Paul is telling us to take responsibility for our own joy. What I mean by that is this. No other person on planet earth can make you happy. And no other person can steal your happiness. Don't wait for somebody else to bring you joy. Choose joy. Where is joy found? In the ongoing methodical walk with God. That over time you come to trust him more and more. That no matter what the circumstances are in your life, you just know he is with you. And if he is with you, then there's joy that goes at a deeper level than even even our happiness. He says to do this also with patience, which is extending grace and believing that God will do a work. The scriptures say, I believe this is Colossians, uh, the scriptures say of Jesus that he has unlimited patience. Patience could be this, the deep-seated confidence that God will eventually do the work. Can I confess of all the things that are on this list, this is the one that I despise the most that Paul had to put in. And I'm not talking about trite things like traffic. I've mentioned this before. You watch me in traffic, it's as if I am not a follower of Jesus. It's, it's not pretty. I'm not talking about things like I'm t- patience, patience with God's people. Are you patient with God's people? Are you drawing up alongside of them? Are you believing that God is working in them? He's going to do something eventually that this is going to bear fruit in their life? Are you still demanding that they meet your needs and your timing in your way? Finally, in that section there in in verse 12, um, he says we do this through prayer. Can I... 
I believe that this is the single greatest act we will ever do for another person is to pray and not just a one-time prayer, but to devote ourselves to laboring in prayer on, another, on behalf of another human being is the single greatest act of love that we can do for someone else. Why is that? Because by definition, we are acknowledging when we hit our knees and we pray before God, we're acknowledging, God, I don't, I'm not powerful enough. I'm not persuasive enough. There's not a whole lot I can do right here. And I believe so firmly that only you are the one who can do something. So I'm going to assault your throne. I'm going to badger you. I'm going to bother you. I'm going to be like the persistent widow. I'm just going to keep showing up. And I'm going to ask God over and over and over again, would you please change their heart so that it's oriented towards you, so that their greatest joy is found in you? Whatever you want to do with their behavior is fine, but I'm asking, Lord, that you would transform them, renew their minds, call them into your presence, give them the joy of offering themselves as living sacrifices. When you do that over and over and over and over again for someone, it's the greatest act of love you can do. Now, hear this. I have also found this very curious. I have found that those that I pray for with tenacity I'll be doggone if God doesn't force me to love them all. There's lots of folks over the years that I have found, I don't like you. And the Lord just put on my heart to pray for them. I started praying for them and dad gummit if I didn't end up loving them. Still didn't like them, but I loved them. You got people in this church that you don't like. You got people in this church that you are asking, God, would you change them? Good, keep praying it. But keep praying it. And keep praying it. And keep praying it. And know that God just may change your heart for them. The two areas of sin that I would suggest you you follow this with um, um, there. In the areas of lust and gossip, I would say, um, if you will develop a habit, if we will develop a habit of saying, before I lust over this person, before I gossip about this person, I'm just going to pray for them. If you will force yourself to pray that God would move in them, stir in them, etc., watch how it changes your whole heart. And they move from being just some object that you can use for whatever purpose you want to a person made in the image of God, valued, worthy, of honor. Now, very, very rapidly, he says in verse 13 that we are to do this through generosity and also hospitality. We are to give to those who are in need and to be hospitable. What's the basic difference? If I could sum it up this way, this is probably too broad. Generosity is giving to others what they don't yet have, but what they do need. Hospitality is sharing with others what we do have and they probably need. Hospitality has more to do with welcoming people into our world, making others feel like family generosity has more to do with meeting specific needs through a financial or maybe even some clothing or food, whatever it may be. In verse 15, he says, do this by rejoicing and by mourning. Rejoicing means that we join in the joy. Mourning means that we shoulder the sorrow. Now, both of these concepts, please hear this, both of these ideas is that we are going to draw into the presence of others, and we are not going to let them celebrate alone. Oh, no. 
You're not going to have all that to yourself. I'm going to share in that with you. And we're also not going to let them stew. And we're not going to let them, them, them fall into a pile alone. No, I will shoulder this with you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Why? Because they're family. I refuse he says here, to let the idea of you doing it alone. Finally, he closes it out in verse 16 by, uh, by telling us that we are to seek unity. Live in harmony with one another. What does that mean? It actually means to be of the same mind in there. We've used this illustration before, but please hear it. We can try as hard as we want to all get on the same page and be of one mind. We can do that with, with great effort and we will fail. If Jesus is the tuning fork and we all go towards him, then we will be of one mind. Scripture tells us that we have the mind of Christ. Christ prays for our unity in John chapter 17. He is the focal point. If you want us to be unified around a political party or an idea or a cause or something, it is going to fail. If we're unified around the person of Jesus, that will succeed every single time. Be Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. This means simply don't think too highly of yourself. He's in here referring to no task that should exist should be beneath us. But be willing to associate with others of low status. Don't be too terribly impressed with worldly status. It may be really good here. It may get you a lot of free meals. It may get you autographs. It may, worldly status can do some things here. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself. Just don't be too impressed with it. I assure you it's going away one day. When the skies open and Jesus makes his way back, nobody's going to give a flying rat's behind who was on the food chain up here or here or down here. Everybody's going to be obsessed with the redeemer of the universe. So be willing to associate with no task should be beneath us when he says do not be proud. No person should be beneath us when he says be willing to associate and then finally, he just says, don't be conceited. It's a quote, I believe, from Proverbs 3, 7, which says to be not wise in your own eyes. Close with this. Psalm 133. <clears throat> Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That's the first line. The last line of the psalm goes like this. For there, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. When the brothers dwell in unity, it is in that place that the Lord commands blessing to be brought forth. Can I ask you to dream with me for just one moment? Can you imagine what kind of a church we would be, what kind of a church the church would be if we lived like this? If we rejoiced with those who rejoiced, if we mourned with those who mourned, if we honored one another above ourselves, if we refused to let others be alone, if our love was sincere, if we hated what was evil, if we clung to what was good, if we put into practice what Paul is, can you imagine what kind of a church we would be? And since Jesus was the one who gave permission to the world out there to say, you want to know who they are, look for these qualities. Can you imagine how attractive that would be to a lost world to say, I don't even know what they believe at Wildwood. But have you seen the way that they treat each other? It's ridiculous. They seem to think that they're all like family. If 
if you could devote yourself to one thing, I would beg you to devote yourself to praying. Husbands, pray for your wives. Wives, pray for your husbands. Parents, pray for your kids. Kids, pray for your parents. Brothers, pray for your sisters. Sisters, pray for your brothers. Coaches, pray for your players. Players, pray for your coaches. Teachers, pray for your students. Students, please, pray for your teachers. If we found ourselves assaulting the throne of grace, I can't help but think that God would not mold, shape, and form.